Hi, everybody. This AKI podcast will be moderated by me. Eric, my name is Eric Hosten. I'm an intensivist working in Ghent University Hospital in Belgium, and my research interest is critical care nephrology. I'm a past chair of the Ezekiel AKI section. Uh, we are co-hosting this together with Mark Romaine, and Mark will uh, introduce himself. Mark. Hi, good day. My name is Mark Romaine. I'm a critical care nephrologist working in the medical intensive care unit in the Adassa Medical Center in Jerusalem. And my main area that I focus on is acute kidney injury and looking forward to our discussion today. Good, and then we uh, we have the, the honor that uh, we are joined to, today with to, with um, by um, Dr. Mink Chola. Mink um, has a long time career as a critical care nephrologist in Washington, and he's currently in California, where he's a part time intensivist in the San Diego VA system, and he's also working in the biotech industry. Mink is the author of numerous important studies in critical care nephrology. I'm sure many of you have read some of his papers. His accomplishments are difficult to summarize in a few words. His research has been crucial in our understanding of the complex interaction between AKI and CKD and the long-term consequences of AKI. He participated in many biomarker studies, and importantly, he's a very creative thinker. And this may be illustrated by the fact that he's the inventor or co-inventor of renal angina. He's the inventor of the furosemide stress test and the person behind the use of angiotensin II as a vasopressor. Welcome, Mink, to the program. Thank you, Eric and Mark, and delighted to be speaking with you both. Okay, we invited you, Mink, because we, we wanted to discuss your paper, Permissive Isotemia During AKI Enables More Rapid Renal Recovery and Less Renal Fibrosis, a Hypothesis and Clinical Development Plan. And this paper was published in Critical Care 2022. And, uh, well, it's it's uh, the title already alludes. It's, uh, it's, it's a controversial um, uh, kind of paper. It's... it's uh, it's um, it's something we 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 discussed all, uh, about, and uh, well, we we wanted to meet the uh, the, the author and um, and share our thoughts with the author and and have a, an insight from the author. So, Ming, can you explain in short the essence of the paper? Yeah, it's, so it's a it's a very interesting idea that came about through um, a bit of uh, weird interactions with some of my. Um, translational colleagues. So I was in a meeting many years ago, and um, the folks who do the animal models for acute kidney injury, particularly in rodents, um, were mentioning the fact that when they did an AKI model, and as, as, as all of us are aware, the standard model we see when we go to a large clinical meeting is an ischemia reperfusion injury, and it's bilateral. So they'll cross clamp both renal arteries or they'll come across the aorta, usually 30 to 45 minutes, and they induce a very nice episode of acute tubular necrosis. And I overheard um, one of the, um, you know, translational scientists mentioning that it had to be bilateral. And I said, well, why couldn't you do it unilaterally and have the other kidney serve as its own control? Because in, in my, I'm a clinician, I don't, I don't do lots of animal studies, it seemed to me that 
that would be a nice way to have a control. You could injure one kidney and the other kidney is presumably in the same animal is a very nice control for that kidney. And they said, oh, if you do that, the model doesn't work. And I thought that was a very odd thing for someone to say. I said, well, what do you mean doesn't work? They said, well, if you leave the other kidney in uninjured and you give ischemia to the, the one kidney, that kidney never recovers. But if you take the other kidney out, then that kidney will recover. And I thought that made no sense at all to me. I mean, why would the recovery of the kidney be affected by the presence or absence of the other kidney? So I hadn't thought about it for, for a long time. And um, you know how sometimes when you're bored and you're on a conference call that you wanna get out of and you open a separate window and you start reading something, <laughs> You know, I just started reading about this and I was stunned to find that this insight about the contralateral kidney being important was actually first described in 1954. And then there was a very elegant study done again in 1980. And as I kept reading about this, I found this, you know, beautiful paper talking about how you should do an ischemia reperfusion injury model. And it was sort of a how-to paper for translational scientists in the lab. And it said right off the bat, like number two bullet, do not do unilateral kidney. You must remove the other kidney or do bilateral or the model doesn't work. So this group of people, clinical translational scientists have known about this for at least 40 years. And they train all the newcomers that you must remove the kidney if you do unilateral or you must do bilateral injury for the model to work. And then I'm like, oh, so they understand this. And I kept reading and it doesn't explain why. And I thought this was very odd. So I started reading the literature some more because now I was confused. And I came to find that there's basically two very clear um, roots of science in this space. One is how does a unilateral kidney hypertrophy? And this is very important for people who donate a kidney to a loved one, for a living related donor. So we wanna understand why, and we, and we all know this clinically, we, we've had a, a mother or a father donate a, a, a kidney to a child or a relative. And it's, as a nephrologist, it's fascinating, right? Their creatinine, is normal, they give a kidney, the creatinine becomes abnormal, as you'd expect, because they have lost 50% of their nephron mass. And then they come to clinic three months later and the creatinine is now normal again. So that other kidney has miraculously and effectively hypertrophied and taken on more function. And then we, we all know what this is and we all know what hyperfiltration is and that kidney will hypertrophy. So there's a very long, deep science on how a kidney hypertrophies when it when you lose one kidney. But there's also another set of science looking at the effects of leaving that kidney in versus taking it out. And I think one of the people who's done some of the similar work is Dick Zager uh, in Seattle. And he has very beautifully shown that something about the uremic milieu is protective. And when I started reading his work, I arrived at this idea that not only is the uremic milieu potentially 
protective, it's something we ought to be clinically placing onto patients because it may explain many of the findings we see in our trials and it is eminently testable. So I, I spent some time and I wrote up uh, a paper and I showed it to some colleagues and friends and they all vomited on it. And so uh, <laughs> I was stuck being the single author and here we are. <laughs> so you knew you were, will, you were in the right place. <laughs> yeah, I, will, I, won't, I won't name my dear friends who I showed this to and said, hey, you know, what do you think? And they said, Mink, I love you, but you are on your own. So, so here we are. So, but in this paper, you actually describe that that azotemia could be a, a, a good thing, and you also um, speculate on a, on a, on a clinical trial in in uh, AKI patients uh, treated with RT and and aiming at different levels of uremia. Um, maybe you can dwell a little bit on that, or or. Yeah. So I think the thing which was interesting is that we as nephrologists are a very unique specialty because we are the only specialty that every day goes to work and believes in subtractive therapy. So as a nephrologist, we believe in removing things being good. And we think a lot about this. We think about KTORV and urea handling and middle molecules, and we develop fancy machines to do subtractive therapy. No other specialty subtracts. Everyone else gives something. They give a drug, they give a device, they implant something. We are always removing things. That's what we do. It is actually the genius of cough was remove all this stuff and the patient wakes up. It, you know, it, it's brilliant, right? So we believe in removing things. And so the thing which is interesting is we tend to remove things in a fixed menu kind of way. So when we apply dialysis or convection to a patient, we remove lots of things, volume, electrolytes, small, you know, uh, small molecules, large molecules, middle molecules, et cetera. And so the, the idea for me was maybe we should be removing things that we know to be bad and maybe leave something in that in the short term is helpful. But because we're subtractive physicians and in chronic patients, as a nephrologist, we teach this to our fellows, we teach this to our trainees, that thrice weekly hemodialysis achieves an EGFR of somewhere between 10 to 15 mLs per minute, which is poor. None of us would want to have an EGFR that low. So it's in our deep held belief, because we love our kidneys, we love nephrons, we're nephrologists, that giving more clearance must be good. Like we absolutely believe this. And, but we're struck by the fact that even in thrice weekly hemodialysis, increasing the dose beyond a certain point doesn't improve outcome. But we do know in chronic hemodialysis, if the dose is too low, people do worse. So there's, a, there's an obvious clear rationale for a minimum dose, which, which is rational. And when Claudio ran his study where he tested, you know, large amounts of hemofiltration versus less and showed an improved outcome, we agreed. Like none of us were surprised by the result. And we said, this, this must be the way forward. And then it took us 20 years 
and the Renal trial and the ATN study to arrive at a conclusion that is slightly different than this. But I think the key bias, which believe me, I shared for most of my career, is increased dose of dialysis must be good for you if you're critically ill, must be. But I think the thing which was interesting about the translational work was that the consistency of the findings in animal studies. This is multiple authors, multiple research groups across many decades in different countries. And the signal is very robust and very consistent. And I think the problem, the cognitive dissonance, if you will, is we know uremia is bad. This is uncontrovertible. Uremia is bad, period, full stop. However, something about the uremic milieu behaves a lot like a powerful drug to improve kidney recovery. And so I think the insight in the paper, which I have a hypothesis for, which is not proven, is that in the short term, uremia is a growth factor. The way carbon dioxide is a strong induction for someone to breathe. So if you're trying to extubate someone and their PCO2 is 20, they are not going to be liberated from the ventilator. We know this. So we often let the PCO2 rise to 45, 50 to induce that patient to breathe. Because if you don't induce them to breathe, they won't. Similarly, the kidney requires stimulus. If it doesn't see a toxin to filter, it doesn't do the work. It becomes lazy, not unlike our children, right? So, <laughs> so the idea is, while I do believe uremia is bad for you, my thesis is that it only becomes bad for you as it accrues. You need to achieve substantial buildup of uremic toxins which in my mind is a blood urea nitrogen level of around 150 before you begin to see the deleterious effects of uremia. But in the meantime, in the meantime, it's a very potent stimulus for renal repair and recovery. So I would, for the, for the intensivists who are listening, I would say my thesis is that CO2 of 40 to 50 in a critically ill patient who has been mechanically ventilated is good. A PCO2 of 100 or 150 is a problem. Similarly, in a patient who has acute kidney injury, I believe that a short period of modest uremia will induce enhanced repair and recovery. Um, and so once I sort of had this thesis, I began to look into the literature to see if anyone had done the opposite of the Ronco trial, right? And the opposite of the Ronco trial is to give less. And there's only one paper that I found that was done in Japan, um, but there was actually a paper that was done by Ronaldo's group that was a patient level data. And I actually, oh, I, I didn't see this study and that, had I seen it, I would have quoted in the paper. This is done by Wang and colleagues. It's an NDT in uh, 2018. And they did a systematic review across many of the dose studies. And they found that the increased intensity of CRT, so the mode is the same, 
higher intensity, meaning higher dose, was consistently associated with delayed renal recovery compared to the lower intensity group. So there is actually some really good clinical trial level data that suggest that the intensity of small solute clearance may actually result in delayed repair and recovery. But what's interesting in the translational data was that the result of the kidney being in a low uremic milieu environment was to become durably fibrotic. And so if and the thesis is do we have have, a, have have data, animal data or, or other data that that can give us a, a guidance on on on, on, on a future trial, on, on what level of, of, of um, uremia or BUN we should aim for? Or, or... Yeah, yeah. The, the number is around 125 to 150 milligrams per deciliter of BUN, yeah. which, is, which is, let's be honest, that's quite high. That is not a number that any of us, I think, clinically tomorrow could feel comfortable with. Um, and so I think that when we start thinking about clinical trials, we will need to start, the current standard is, let's say, 25 uh, cc's per kg per hour, plus or minus 5 cc's, depending on where you are in the world and your predisposition. I would say something between 10 and 15 should be the first study. And if you show no harm, and maybe even if there is some positive signal, you can begin to go lower. I think the first study should be modest because we must be safe first and yeah. all of us so look i still take care of patients and i believe this thesis to be true but i don't dose low yet i don't have that level of conviction because we may have an idea we may have a thesis but in this way i, I think we should lead with very thoughtful pilot data to give ourselves assurances that this is the right way to go yeah, Mark, your microphone is not on, Mark. So, one one of the concerns that I had with with the hypothesis of decreasing the so-called renal replacement therapy dose would be that there are patients who initially one do one needs to get their potassium down, their phosphate down and at the same time obviously you're going to clear urea uh, and then at some point you need to slow down that process as we also know from the start uh, acute kidney injury trial the patients who were on uh, the accelerated side had a poor outcome possibly because of the removal of other molecules but how would one balance the urea at a higher level as well as removing potassium, phosphate, and uh, other electrolytes that uh, are also potentially harmful? Yeah, so I think that's, of course, a very important question. And what I suggest in the paper is that for patients who have profound uh, amounts of hyperkalemia, someone with rhabdomyolysis, someone with necrotizing fasciitis, wherein keeping up with hyperkalemia management it requires substantial amounts of clearance, those patients ought to be excluded because that is a life-threatening event and you must control the potassium. However, 
in my clinical practice, the vast majority of the time, the singular indication for the initiation of RRT is almost always volume overload. Yes, and the hyperkalemia is typically present but modest. And I cannot recall a time for a critically ill patient that didn't have rhabdo or neck fash, wherein I started treatment for hyperkalemia. And even if the potassium is six or seven, if there aren't EKG changes, then bringing the potassium down slowly in a supervised environment of intensive care where you're checking electrolytes every 12 hours, I think can be done very safely. From the standpoint of acidemia, if you're removing volume, you can easily give back base in the form of sodium bicarbonate and deal with pH very easily without having a massive increase in small solute clearance. So I think that in the hands of sophisticated, thoughtful clinical trialists, like the three of us on the call and others that we know, a group of people we would very enjoyably have a beer with at an ISICA meeting, I think this could be done without a great deal of difficulty. However, this would not be a process that I would advocate anyone undertake in the absence of data. So I want to be clear that this is a, a thesis. It is a hypothesis. And, and in a different time, this would be considered absolute heresy and a decent church would have burned me at the stake, you know, weeks ago. But we live in a slightly more advanced time. And so we can actually have a dialogue about it, which I think yeah. is comforting. No, it's it's very important that you mentioned this because we 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 all the three of us got carried away with with the, with the hypothesis and 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 then you speculate and you you may give a wrong impression and that's of course not the uh, that's not the the idea of this podcast. Um, can we extrapolate this idea a little bit further on and and could we think of considering um, early AKI AKI stage one two patients and treat them with uh, urea? <laughs> And, and yeah, and... so this is a fascinating idea. And uh, Ronaldo Bolomo uh, has just coined a new term. He saw this paper and he says, Mink, and he, and he did it in his Aussie accent, right? Which is, you are defining azotrauma. And so, you know, Ronaldo, aside from being brilliant and a genius, also has a clear marketing uh, capacity. So I should have consulted with him in advance of publishing this paper. But I do think that we must first begin in a very safe place. Patients who right. have initiated RRT, if we prove this thesis to be true, then I think we can begin to consider, does a uremic enhancement improve? Now, I think the area for which I have the maximum uncertainty is what portion of the uremic milieu is creating this beneficial effect. So I, I do subscribe that the uremic milieu clearly improves renal recovery and it probably improves global outcomes. However, I do specify that I think, I think it is urea, but I don't know that. So I would want to get the first series of studies done first and then I think you could begin to consider something. I would start with urea because it's a very straightforward molecule. We understand it very well. We can measure it, we can titrate it. Um, but if you have a 
pretty sick patient with stage one AKI, there are non-trivial osmotic effects of giving urea, right? So I think that there's some other things to consider. Um, but I think the the key is is to try and start a first study. And it, the timing of this podcast is quite good because I was recently contacted by Tomoko Fuji in Japan, and she's actually starting uh, a trial called the LIMIT study, L-I-M-I-T, wherein she uh, plans to compare 25 mLs per kg per hour to um, a lower dose of 12 cc's per kg per hour with the primary outcome to be 28-day renal replacement free days as a multicentric trial. So nice. um, Tomoko uh, spent some time, I think, around three or four years with Ronaldo and Melbourne. So um, she, she comes from uh, what we would call good pedigree. Um, so, you know, we, we, we sort of look at the world as having five pedigrees in our field, right? There's the Belomo people, which we refer to as the Belomists. <laughs> there are those who were trained under John Kellum. And sadly for Eric, he's one of those people. <laughs> they're, they're referred to as the Kellumites. <laughs> it's like a biblical tribe that's very lost. So Mark, I hope you're not offended. It would not make it into the Old Testament, you know, being in Jerusalem, and I want you to get into any trouble over this. They're, 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 they're those who were trained under Rabbi Metha. They're the Metans, like Martians, but Metans. They're very cerebral, very kind people, you know. And then, and, then, and then there's the Ronconians, and I don't think I need to specify much more about them. And then there's the rest of us, like me and, and, and Louis Forney, you know, we're, and, and Marlies, and we're, we're the heretics. So we're sort of this lost tribe that is, you know, sort of rambling around the desert looking for a home. And then there's the pediatric group, which is under the Stu Goldstein group. And we haven't named them yet. I do think they, they require a name. So... Tomoko is a is a is a Belomist, so we have high hopes. And I think, all joking aside, I think it'll be a, a very interesting study, and uh, I think they're in a, in a good place to be able to conduct the study thoughtfully and carefully. Yeah, correct. Um, uh, while, while you were uh, discussing um, uh, the, the the appropriate level of uremia in in, in CRT, I, I was thinking of. Um, Maybe you could think of of controlling this urea level in these patients by uh, using uh, the diffusion uh, therapy and 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 adds um, urea to the to the to the dialysate. So you have a controlled um, level of urea in these patients. It's, yeah, I now think I'm really is... speculating and and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I think this is actually a very good point, Eric, because I think that there is a group of patients um, wherein your the, the clinical initiation of uh, RRT is almost certainly to be a BUN of around 80 to 100, just, just based on the volume overload component. So they're volume overloaded, you start them. And if you look at Renal, you look at ATN, you look at the baseline BUNs, it's in that vicinity, we call it 80 to 120. But if we surmise that a higher BUN with a background of good volume control, and if it, if it turns out to be urea, let's, let's imagine for a moment that this, this guess of mine is right, then I do think that giving urea back in clever ways to increase it to its maximum recovery and repair potential 
is is logical as to what that number is you know my number of 150 you know it, it should be suspicious immediately because it's a nice round number you know if i selected a prime number it would, it would sound more elegant right but but it's based on the animal data and i think a number that we as clinicians could tolerate without having significant angina because I think if, if the number had been 200, I don't think we'd be okay with it, even if it turns out that that's the correct number. If we are going to go that high, we are going to need to do some substantial clinical work to get comfortable around that. Because I believe this, but I won't be comfortable 200 until I have data. I mean, that's 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 madness even no, for me. No, but 100 seems seems to me pretty safe. I I. I we had yeah. a small conversation before we started this, and 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 I never have seen uh, pericarditis uh, because of uremia um, in AKI patients. That is, or 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 other, any other of these these uh, so-called uremia associated um, syndromes or effects. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, may, there, there's always someone who who knows a patient who who had pericarditis, the the, the one exception. But I, I guess um, we we are seeing our patients pretty early uh, during the course of their disease, and, and and we don't see these extremes anymore that they saw in the, in the 70s or 60s. I guess. Um, so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we um, we maybe we should give a, a take home message for for the for the listeners to of this of this podcast also so um if we summarize this um um animal data suggests that uremia in itself is not so bad that the kidney um gets stimulated by by uremia the uremic milieu you have some reasons to believe that it's urea itself of the uremic toxins toxins that's that's responsible for that although you're not sure on that and um so this uh this hypothesis is then that um we in the past we maybe we or or at present also we we were overzealous correcting um uh, uremia and maybe um uh, in in that respect um uh, we're, uh, we're, 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 yeah, um, inducing um, continuous uh, inflammation um, um, and uh, fi and resulting fibrosis in the kidneys, and 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 and, and uh, that's maybe the reason that that these that these patients that are treated for CRT for so long have have also non-recovery of of kidney function. Yeah. I think that's right. Now, what I would I would I would say is that, as as a specialty that has enjoyed you know really an extraordinary seven decade success of being able to continuously improve renal replacement therapy, you know which we have. I mean, you you look at the original device that Kolf made and look at where we are today, and you can put mm. one point eight or meters squared in a in a small tube. It's really quite extraordinary. What I would say is that my global suggestion is that as nephrologists and intensivists who are removing things, my primary idea is that we should be more selective of what we remove and when we remove it. So I want to be clear that I am not proposing an Akiki 2 trial. What I am proposing is that patients 
continue to be put on renal replacement therapy based on their clinical indication. My bias remains that we should start early, period, full stop. This is my bias. Clinically, I still think we should be putting patients on RRT early because the singular biggest issue, in my view, of critical illness marked with renal dysfunction is fluid overload. My, my good friend, Stu Goldstein, and his cadre of pediatric nephrologists have, in my view, fundamentally demonstrated this truth. This truth, not surprisingly, exists in adult patients as well as pediatric patients. And, and actually, Mink, so, that's, that's not really in conflict with, with the findings of START-AKI, because START-AKI is kind of suggesting, and AKI also, you shouldn't start too early, but th these were patients that... Uh, uh, the, the physicians included when they uh, had no strong feelings of uh, starting RT. If, if there was fluid overload, they were started on RT and, and they were not included in the AKI, in START AKI trial. Yeah, I, I agree. And so, my, so I want to be clear that I'm advocating that we still treat fluid overload aggressively. Mm -hmm. We, of course, deal with electrolyte and acid base disorders, which are not difficult to do with a modern. CRT device, but we allow the short-term potential benefits of a uremic milieu in that environment. So we're selective. We're removing volume. We'll remove potassium. We will remove acid and give back base. But what we want to do is take advantage of the evolutionary biology that I think exists that there are many, many examples in medicine where there are inducers that are harm that induce counter-regulatory physiology, which are good. Hypovolemia induces a stress response. It induces ADH. It induces angiotensin to renin production, et cetera. This is highly adaptive, right? Elevated CO2 dramatically increases respiratory rate. We know this. We can do it to ourselves by breathing into a paper bag. I believe that this similar phenomenon occurs for renal physiology as well. So the, the global idea is to be selective in what we remove and what we don't remove, which we haven't done. We, we sort of just do all or nothing. I'm suggesting to be a little bit more uh, taking an approach with a scalpel and not a butter knife. So that's the global idea. Specifically, I think we should do this within the context of clinical trials. I will say that if this turns out to be correct, every large healthcare ministry in Europe should write us a check because we are going to save them so much money by decreasing the amount of fluid that they use in the intensive care unit for renal replacement therapy and the patients are likely to improve more rapidly. And so let us agree that the three of us will lobby every large <laughs> European health ministry and demand 10% of the savings. <laughs> now, this, of course, will only go to research and, and maybe a little bit towards time at the pub. I'm not saying it would be zero, <laughs> but I think that you know we should be rewarded for saving all these countries so much money and improving their outcomes. Look, it is very rare in life to do less and get more. So, and if anyone will tell you, and my, my parents would attest to this, that I, I have a, a natural laziness tendency. So perhaps this speaks 
to my to my inner child. So so we can only hope. And I, I would say I would say lastly that um, the translational data being so consistent is is quite striking. And so for people who look at this idea ascons, which which they should, I think anyone who sees this should uh, have some cynicism and be concerned. But I think if you look at the totality of the data, I think you may not agree with my view here, but I do think you would agree it deserves to be tested. And so um, I wish uh, Tomoko and her colleagues in Japan great luck. I, I, I know that Alex Zarbach in Munster is also planning a, a similar study, um, but I think that this study should also be done in Europe as well. Uh, yeah. I'll be very honest, uh, my American colleagues will do no such study ever um, for reasons we'll discuss offline, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, they, 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 won't, they won't find it very compelling, uh, which is okay. But I do think there's, um, there's something to be tested here. I think it can be tested very safely. Mark is waving. I wanted to go back uh, <coughs> to the point you made uh, a little while ago, Mink that uh, less is more. And I think that the whole approach, our whole approach in the intensive care is less is more because we know when we try and push our patients to supraphysiological numbers, as you mentioned previously, when we try and get to a CO2 that's below normal or normal, there's a price we pay in terms of barotrauma or lack of weaning, so on and so forth. Our targets for hemoglobin and blood transfusion have dropped drastically over the years. And once uh, one field discovered that that was right, it's something that has continued on to other patients who can then tolerate the lower hemoglobin. We tolerate permissive hypoxia because the effects of giving too much oxygen are also detrimental. So I think in marketing your thesis, I think it's you've done a great job in calling it permissive azothemia because in I think it fits with our general approach to the intensive care patient that we need to get them through their uh, bad illness without fixing the numbers too much because by trying to overcorrect, we're gonna cause more harm. But I think, yeah, I think that's great. We, we, we should still stress, and, and, and Mink has uh, stressed this already several times, that it's still uh, something that has to be proven in, in research. And so this, this, is, uh, this, is, this is speculative, but it's not speculative. It's, it's based on, on, on sound clinical data, and, and Mink, uh, Mink, Mink uh, talked about these. But I think we should uh, keep in mind that we wait for the, 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 the data from Japan, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think the one thing I would say is that, you know, it's 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 useful to learn from other fields when when your field is not getting ahead. And I think uh, I have been very effective at stealing ideas from other fields. So renal angina is obviously being stolen from the cardiologists. And in general, most cardiologists are insufferable. So it's hard to to steal from them and feel good about it because you feel like you should come up with your own thing. But even the furosemide stress test is, is essentially a treadmill test or a dobutamine test. And I think that the, the idea here is a little bit of taking away from the surgeon. So we are all of a similar age. And when we were in our early training, there was this movement from open surgery to laparoscopic surgery. And 
the older surgeons would, would complain bitterly that you've taken a 30-minute procedure and made it into a two-hour procedure. And they weren't wrong, but the results were better. And I think one of the things that we have gotten much better at in critical care, and I think I'd like to see this applied to nephrology, is this notion of minimally invasive RRT. Can we do what we do, but can we do it with a smaller footprint? Can we do it with less trauma? Can we be more selective in what we remove and how we remove it? I think this is an idea that I would like to, to, to socialize on this podcast, and I would love to see other colleagues in our space think about this, this notion of minimally invasive RRT, because if you have the ability to just remove volume and that gets you most of the way there, then maybe you don't need a 13 French catheter in your IJ, which thromboses that vessel for the rest of your life and causes substantial endothelial injury. We know the bigger the vessel, the more problems it causes. So I think that in addition to removing things a bit more carefully, which I think is important, I think we should think about how we can do what we do with less injury, less trauma. And this is a bit of a theft from the laparoscopic movement, but I'm sure all of us have seen or even experienced ourselves, the difference between a laparoscopic procedure, the time to recovery and back to normal yeah, life, yeah. compared to a giant incision across your abdomen, which which anyone Absolutely. who's been through that knows is no joke. Um, and it's quite humbling, actually, um, to have a quote unquote minor procedure and and be a little baby at home for a week while while your spouse is looking after you wondering what happened <laughs> so i think we there's some things to be learned there and um so that's sort of the idea and uh i hope that we all can work together on this moving forward yeah wink it was a very stimulating uh, discussion I, I i'm afraid we have to wrap up our time is up i think we have a f we we have seen or discussed the future view on on uh, critical care nephrology, uh, uh, very personal view of of Mink, and I I very much like it. Um, less is more, minimal invasive RRT and permissive isotemia are 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 um, are quotes I think we should keep in mind, and and they will come back, and um, uh, I'm sure um, uh, future research will. Uh, will uh, will follow and and, and we will hear, we will hear more of this great uh, great discussing this with you mink and mark yeah thank thanks you very much, much everybody great Super. to see you both uh, even though everyone on the call is just listening to us and i look forward to the three of us having a pint soon somewhere in the world cheers <laughs>